Hello, and welcome to Strange Sound. This is episode 40 of Strange Sound. We've uh, rounded out another 10. Here we are, 40th episode. It is early December, actually December 5th. My mother Iris's birthday, actually, and uh, happy birthday, Mom. And just settling in here, glad to have you with us. Or I should say glad to have you with me, because Strange Sound is just me. I'm Joe. Joe and Strange Sound are the same thing. So, uh, standard disclaimer, all of the uh, opinions expressed on Strange Sound are mine and mine alone. They represent the views of no one else besides me. That includes my employer, my uh, friends, my neighbors, my family members, etc., etc. So, uh, any... Any coincidence between my views and those of the people that I mentioned are pure chance. I'm not representing their views. I'm just representing mine. So whatever you hear here, it's from me and me alone. Anyway, glad to be here as always. Another week, another great week in the history of mankind, particularly here in the United States. Um, Crazy week. They're all crazy, aren't they? The COVID deaths are hitting new heights, and it's really distressing. Um, We're in excess of 2,700 deaths per day, Um, a ridiculous number that is rising. And the number of cases are rising, including in in my little backwater town of uh, Utica, New York, in central New York, up here, upstate. I might have mentioned in previous episodes that we really haven't been hit very hard by COVID, though we have had our share, our share of deaths, at least as far as like a rural community is concerned. Um, There's been a number of people who died in nursing homes and elsewhere. Um, There's been a number of cases, but those are all on the rise in, in this County. And I'm living in Oneida County in upstate New York. And, uh, Whereas it's not as dramatic as in other parts of the country, you know, that are suffering much, much harder than we are. We are certainly seeing a marked rise in cases and a marked rise in deaths and a marked rise in hospitalizations. And it's worrying. Um, So (laughs) all I can say is be careful out there, folks. Please don't listen to anyone who says that masks don't make any difference. Masks make a difference. Just wear the effing thing, please, please, just do it. Just do it, my friends. It's not so bad. I wear one. It's not so bad. And it's, you know, look, it just brings the, it brings the chances down that you will either catch it yourself or spread it to somebody else. And that's enough. That's enough to make it worthwhile. That's enough to make it worth your effort to do so. I'm not trying to lecture folks here. I'm just saying, please. Um, 
it's this thing is just getting completely out of control. There's tens of thousands of people who have died that, you know, didn't need to die because of this thing. And uh, we need to start saving people's lives. It's, it's such a simple, such a simple way to do it, right? It's just such a simple thing. We can save people's lives by doing this simple thing for just a while. I found that Americans are, uh, at least in modern times, Americans are a little averse to sacrifice. (laughs) Generally speaking, don't want to give up anything. Don't want to be inconvenienced. Don't want to be told what to do. I get it, but at the same time, really, this is so small. This is like wearing an armband, okay? If you could wear an armband and stop people from being killed in, you know, and stop like Rohingya Muslims from being killed in Burma, um, if it were just a question of wearing an armband, you could save a bunch of lives out there. Wouldn't you do it? Really? Wouldn't you do it? Well, over here, it's it's pretty similar. You know, if you if we all wear masks, we can actually save tens of thousands of people. Um, we can sort of bend that curve back down, um, save our hospitals, which are just straining under the weight of all these additional cases, largely because of, of underinvestment and disinvestment over the years and corporatization that has um, reduced the capacity of our hospitals to be able to handle events like a massive pandemic um, or, you know, massive natural disasters, that sort of thing. Um, I've talked about this before. It's, it's our sort of corporatized, corporatized health system, um, that doesn't like to have a lot of access capacity online that they have to, you know, pay for and pay to maintain and all that. So they, they've been cutting back and the state's been cutting back and the federal government's been cutting back. I mean, I live in New York state and, and the Cuomo administration has cut back on funding for hospitals and, and the medical system in in general. Um, It's been kind of a quiet thing, but that's what they've been doing. And it sucks, and we're feeling the pain of this right now um, and have been this year um, because of the reduced capacity. Um, The reason why you have additional capacity is for things just like this. And, you know, we're we're basically caught without without the... uh, Resources that we need to handle this. And it's not just beds. It's personnel. You've probably heard this from a million other people, but I'm going to say it just to reemphasize it. Um, It's also just that medical staff have been stretched to the limit. Um, There aren't enough medical providers out there to handle the influx of new patients. And there aren't enough out there to handle... um, the influx of, of patients who are suffering from things that aren't COVID. Um, you know, this is just soaking up all of the capacity that we have to care for people who are ill, desperately ill. And a lot of people are dying because of it. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, the only thing we can do at this point now is to do the things that we know work. Social distancing, wearing the masks, washing our hands, you know, taking just simple precautions to avoid the spread of this virus. 
please do it. All right. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. This week, I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, Trump administration on its way out and some of the things that it's doing sort of on the way out the door that are extensions of things that it's really been doing for four years, but um, seem to be getting more acute. Um, I mean, obviously, this is an administration that came in saying that they wanted to deconstruct the administrative state. Um, They wanted to sort of take it apart stick by stick. They wanted to set, you know, explosive charges in, in the very foundation of the administrative state and, you know, very carefully plant those charges and then detonate them and watch the whole thing implode. And we're at the point where we're seeing some of these institutions begin to implode. I mean, they've been undermined by sort of neoliberal policies for decades. Um, it really took this administration, though, to to start <laughs> finishing the job on a lot of these uh, institutional structures that we have. Um, a good example of this is the post office. And the United States post office is is kind of a miracle. <laughs> I mean... It gets criticized a lot because people interface with it all the time. But if you think about it, this public resource charged with carrying mail to every citizen and every, not not just citizens, but everyone who lives in the United States, every community, they they have a mandate to serve every community. And, you know, if you drop... A letter in the mail, you can send it to anyone in the United States, and it's their job to to get it there, and it's going to cost the same as it, you know, costs to send a letter to somebody across the street, right? It's just, it's kind of a miracle, <laughs> and it has been. Of course, it's a public asset. I mean, it's a. Uh, it's an enterprise that's owned by the United States, by the people of the United States, but it's also a freestanding enterprise, right? It's self-funding. And it's been under attack for, well, it's been under attack for well over a decade, mostly by the Republican Party, but the Democrats have been sort of facilitating this as well. And I think, you know, the signal moment in this was back in the mid-2000s when they, when they passed an act um, during the Bush administration that required the post office to pre-fund their retirement, their their pension plan, something like 75 years in the future so that they were having to fully fund the pension benefits of people who weren't even born yet who would supposedly be working for the post office at some point in the future. And this is, um, <laughs> this is a mandate that was, is bankrupting the post office to this day. I mean, it's just an enormous cost burden to place on that enterprise. And it's, it's been, it's, it's hobbled the post office over these years. And, you know, every, (laughs) we've missed a lot of opportunities to sort of undo that. Um, Why we didn't undo it in 2009, I don't know. Why, when, you know, the presidency was in democratic hands and, the Congress was in Democratic hands with, you know, eventually a little later on in the year, 
had a um, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, why they didn't take that up at some point and say, okay, let's let's save the post office. Let's set up, let's expand their mandate. Let's allow them to do postal banking and some other services that they could that could help their bottom line. But let's remove the mandate that they have to pre-fund these pensions to a ridiculous degree, to an unprecedented degree. They didn't do that. So again, I'm not just... <laughs> the foundation of this problem is a bipartisan one. It was led, I think, by the Republicans, but the Democrats kind of rolled over on this. And they were feckless, as they usually are, in trying in in avoiding any opportunity to fix it. And it's because of the sort of neoliberal turn that they took, that they're sort of backing out of slowly now. We've got some very promising new members of the House of Representatives, um, many of whom I'm sure would be more than happy to um, unwind this spool, right? Uh, but we'll see if they got the opportunity. Anyway, what I was saying is, what I was beginning to say here is that the attack on the post office has been long in the making. The Trump administration has accelerated it by changing their leadership, putting a crony in at the top management of the Postal Service, um, someone who you know, knows a little bit about logistics, knows a little bit about delivery services, and knows how to hobble a company like the post office, a, an enterprise like the post office. And that's what they did. As has been widely reported, as you probably have heard, if you're hearing the sound of my voice, you, you know that they, in the run-up to the 2020 election, because they knew there was going to be a lot of vote by mail because of the COVID situation, um, that they were, they were removing sorting machines, they were removing post boxes, they were doing everything they could do to hobble the postal service. Uh, they, they eliminated, um, they changed the overtime rules so that, I, I won't go into detail because it, it's, it gets kind of complicated, but Essentially, what they did was limit uh, mail carriers' ability to to sort of deliver all of the mail that was that needed to be delivered in a given shift. They had to just stop and 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 sort of leave the the packages um, and the parcels and the letters, the commercial mail, um, in a pile somewhere. <laughs> when their shift was over, they couldn't do overtime. You can look this up. Uh, it's been reported on a lot better than I can possibly do because I'm not a journalist. I'm just a commentator. But what I'm saying is they effectively hobbled the post office. And even though they said that they sort of backed off of this because there was a lot of um, there was a lot of backlash related to this, and they they said that they you know they sort of undid some of this. The damage was done, and I've seen the results of this. I have to say, in my own personal experience, I have seen the results of this, and it's not pretty. I have had more problems with mail delivery in the second half of this year than I think I've ever had in my life. 
I literally stopped receiving like my Verizon bill, which I always receive in the mail. I, I have to say I'm kind of a Luddite in this respect. I mean, I do a lot of my bill paying online, but I still like to receive a paper bill from most of my creditors and from most of the companies that I do business with. So if so like Verizon has been for years sending me, you know, a paper bill through the mail. And that's my mnemonic device for actually paying my bill, right? Um, instead of getting an email reminder or something, I would get the paper bill. I'd put it in a little lineup in in you know someplace where I could see it. Uh, you know, I'd know what date it was due, and I'd know how much I had to pay. And then when it came around, I'd just I'd just pay it and then mark it paid and keep track of it. That's my primitive bookkeeping system. It works like a charm except that my bill stopped arriving. They were still sending it. It just wasn't getting to me. For the first time ever, I've been a customer of theirs for like 30 years. And my bill just stopped coming. And so I forgot to pay it a couple, like about a month and a half, I forgot to pay it. I missed like two cycles because I didn't see the bill. That was my mnemonic device, which was stupid of me, but still, it didn't get delivered. And it never got delivered. I attribute this to a problem with with the post office. I talked to Verizon and they straightened it out. But they had sent the bills and it just never got to me. Now multiply that by millions of people across the country and you have some idea of what this what the kind of headaches that this is causing people. The post office is an enormous asset to us. It's a public asset. And the Republicans have always hated it, and the Democrats have always been sort of lukewarm in their defense of it, mostly because of the neoliberal turn that both parties have taken. You know, everything associated with government is problematic in some deep way, which is a pile of crap, right? But that's that's what they did, and and I feel like as we're ending the year here you know they're they've already locked in a lot of the changes to the post office um maybe that's recoverable i certainly hope so it's going to take some investment but it's going to be hard to do this is something we should have done in 2009 2010 when we had the ability to and we didn't we didn't do it then it's going to be hard now that's not the only thing that the trump administration is doing on their way out the door, right? They're also planting operatives deep in the um, federal bureaucracy. Uh, I think I talked about this a little bit in the last episode. But another thing they're doing is, uh, you know, placing cronies at, you know, in the top echelons of the Defense Department and the Pentagon, which is just an enormous enterprise. It's an enormous $750 billion a year enterprise. And I, th- I think that's a low estimate of how much money we pour into this thing. It's the biggest killing machine in the world. It can literally destroy the entire planet. And now it's being run by people who are crackpots. I mean, to a certain extent, it's always been run by crackpots, but this is a level of crackpottery that I don't think we've ever seen before. These are people who, 
you know, believe bizarre conspiracy theories. Um, these are QAnon level conspiracy theorists running the Defense Department. That's crazy. That's unnerving. I know a lot of liberal commentators are mostly worried about the level of threat and vulnerability that that puts us in vis-a-vis our our competitors in the world. Um, I'm not as worried about that as I am just worried about having a crazy person at the wheel of the most destructive military machine ever known to man. (laughs) That's what worries me. The people who have their hands on, on the various controls are, well, let's say they just don't have a very steady hand. So that's troubling. The other thing that they're doing um, is trying to lock in some of their their policy preferences vis-a-vis um, the various um, foreign policy adventures we've been either locked into for the last couple of decades or, you know, that we've been sort of toying with <laughs> on one level or another. Like, I, you know, it does appear just based on recent events that they are trying to gin up a war with Iran or some kind of conflict exchange with Iran. Um, I'm not sure that they want a full-scale war, but I think they would like to... They would like to bloody a few noses so that they can um, forestall any effort to to reinstate the JCPOA, the Iran deal, um, and any kind of further efforts at detente with Iran. Um, They're certainly working overtime with that, and I think they're getting the cooperation of the Israeli government. Um, The assassination of the, the recent assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist is, is an indication of this. They all seem to be not displeased by that. And, uh, you know, it's obvious that they had something to do with it, but we don't, I don't have any confirmation of that. My guess is that, yeah, they were both involved. Both the United States and the Israeli government, I'm sure, were, were involved in this. It's not unprecedented. And uh, it's pretty disgusting. But, I mean, their their objective is clear. The Israelis certainly want... They, they want to fight the Iranians to the last American. That's basically it. They would like for us to get into some kind of conflict with them so that they can, you know, essentially destroy whatever defensive capability they have so that there's, there's no, there's no actual sizable military threat to confront them in the region. They want to eliminate Iran as a, as a potential military adversary, just as we eliminated Iraq as a potential military adversary. So that's part of what they're trying to do. They're trying to lock that in one way or the other. It's kind of hard to say what specifically they have in mind, if they have anything in mind. But it seems to me like we're probably going to see over the next 50 days or so, we're probably going to see more provocations and more attempts at getting a rise out of the Iranians and muddying the waters and, uh, you know, just, just pissing all over that, that situation so that there's no chance that we can back over what they've done over the past few years to uh, sour the relationship. Um, that was already, you know, problematic. There's no question. 
I mean, it's been problematic since I was a teenager, and I am now in my 60s. So <laughs> it's been highly problematic. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, we've been demagoguing on this issue for 40 years. In any case, the other things that they're doing involve troop levels um, in the various conflict zones that we've been engaged in for decades. So uh, Trump wants to remove troops from Afghanistan. I don't think his plan is to zero them out, but I, I think he wants to bring troops home from Afghanistan before he leaves office. He wants to, and it was just recently announced, I think just a couple of days ago, my time. Again, this is Saturday, December 5th, um, that I'm recording this. Um, I've just seen recently that he wants to pull uh, American forces out of Somalia. Um, Most of them, if not all of them, where they've been for quite a long time. And, you know, that all sounds well and good. Right. My my point here is and this is going to be this is going to be criticized mostly on the basis of, well, you know, his administration is coming to an end and, you know, he should he should allow the new administration to make these decisions. Um, The Afghan war has been going on for almost 20 years. Um, This is ridiculous. Uh, We should be leaving Afghanistan if he's pulling troops out of Afghanistan, I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. The bad thing to me is pulling the troops out is not the whole deal, right? We are largely responsible for the state that Afghanistan is in right now. I know somebody out there is going to say, let's blame America first. Okay, fine, whatever. But history is history. We used Afghanistan as a punching bag back in the 1980s to punish the Russians. Um, Yes, they were imposing their will on Afghanistan. It was considered a key frontier for them. And they they installed a government and they supported a government. They were defending a government there. And they were using very brutal tactics like the ones that they use in Syria more recently. Um, the Russians used in Syria more recently, I should say. And we were, you know, we basically set up a funding network that produced the, uh, that supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan throughout the 1980s that prompted the shift in Pakistani society towards a more, um, Wahhabi type, um, Islamic movement um, among, certainly among the Pashtu um, on the Pakistani side of the border. Um, this was encouraged by um, by the dictator of Pakistan at that time, Zia. And uh, was extremely problematic. Um, this is, this was essentially the establishment of the Taliban, both in Afghanistan and and in Pakistan, and um, it was the catalyst for the formation of Al-Qaeda over the course of the 1980s when we were supporting the war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. 
I've talked about this in previous episodes, but because of that, because of the subsequent war in the wake of 9-11, and, you know, pretty much our entire history with Afghanistan between between that time, between the late 1970s, um, when this all started, and the present, um, we have had a lot to do with its ungovernability <laughs> and its its state of perpetual war. Um, so we bear a lot of responsibility for this. So it's a question of not just ending an occupation, ending a military occupation in Afghanistan. It's also a question of how do we repair the damage that we played a key role in creating over the years. You could say the same thing for Somalia. We've been involved in Somalia for decades as well. We supported the regime of Mohamed Siad Berri, the dictator that ran Somalia from about 1969 to the early 1990s. He was originally kind of a client of the Soviets. In the late 1970s, he broke with the Russians. Uh, they, they broke off relations with him, and he became a client state of the United States. I think the uh, Carter administration actually w- was the first to get deeply interested in Somalia uh, from a strategic standpoint because of the loss of the sort of beachhead that they had in Iran. <laughs> they had Iran as a fully cooperative state in the region under the Shah, and uh, they had lost that in the Iranian Revolution. So late in the Carter administration, they were interested in sort of um, increasing their ties to Somalia because that was that was strategically positioned to help them project power in and around the Gulf, around the Horn of Africa, a strategic region that uh, they took a direct interest in. This was, of course, expanded by the Reagan administration. The Reagan administration started giving, you know, um, Siad Barry something like $100 million a year. I think uh, Reagan met with him, I believe, in 1982 to sort of cement the new relationship. And Siad Barry um, was a very divisive leader. He invested in inter-clan violence um, in Somalia. He was basically setting people at one another's throats. Some of the Somalis that um, settled in the Utica area have mentioned this to me. Um, the few times that I've been able to talk to people about this, mostly they've been healthcare workers. Um, you know, they're aware of this history a little bit. I don't know how how aware they are of the fact that we poured, I think it was $100 million a year. I think the total U.S. aid to um, Somalia during the Siad Barry regime was something like three quarters of a three quarters of a billion dollars in total. I think it ran, it ran for about seven or eight years at its, at its peak. Uh, there was a lot of military aid. Uh, there was a massacre in Somalia in 1990, I believe, um, 20 miles south of Mogadishu. Um, I'm going to read from a Washington Post article from about that period. The U.S. government, Somalia's chief source of economic and military aid since 1978, also was assailed by these human rights groups. The, the story was um, um, talking about some of the human rights groups at that time uh, for playing an indirect role in the killing 
in the killing in the North. Critics pointed in particular to an ill-timed shipment of $1.4 million worth of automatic rifles and ammunition to the government in June of 1988. The guns arrived in the middle of a period when the Somali army was, the Somali army, quote, purposely murdered, unquote, at least 5,000 civilians in, the, in that fighting, a report prepared for the State Department last fall said. Then last July, the horror came to Mogadishu. So, uh, you know, we did our best to support the Siad Barre regime until it fell in the early 90s. Um, and the way Siad Barre stayed in, in power in, in uh, Somalia was by setting people against one another, um, sort of fomenting inter-clan violence and, you know, favoring one group over another. It was pretty ugly. And eventually the government fell. The um, United States and the UN sort of moved in in 1993, I believe it was. Um, uh, came in guns ablazing, you know, um, supposedly to follow a sort of peacekeeping role. Not exactly, but that was the sequence of what happened. But um, our responsibility does not end with that, right? Um, there's been a lot of history since then. It hasn't stopped. There was a sort of renewal of our involvement in the mid-2000s under the George W. Bush administration when um, the Bush administration supported um, an invasion by Ethiopia to overthrow a um, provisional government that had been set up by the Union of Islamic Courts, I think it was called. They overthrew that that sort of nascent regime. And uh, since then, it's once again, Somalia has been basically ungovernable. Um, it's been, uh, been a chaos. That, that was just the beginning of like some kind of government trying to take hold. It was a little bit too much of an Islamic character for them to countenance at that time. So they decided to knock it off and, uh, and create uh, more chaos. I think the leader that they put in charge was actually one of the leaders in the, in the uh, Union of Islamic Courts <laughs> government, if I remember correctly. But uh, I'd have to go back and look this up. All I can tell you is that, yeah, we've had a direct role in not only fomenting the violence that tore the country apart originally, that caused it to become a failed state in the 1990s, and that has perpetuated that failed status, you know, throughout the entire period since then. Uh, but we've also sort of reinvested in 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 our efforts to, you know, I don't know, to... <laughs> I'm not sure what our objective is there exactly. I think right now it's really just playing whack-a-mole with some of the groups that have risen up in in the midst of all this chaos. Just taking shots at Al-Shabaab. The Somali group Al-Shabaab um, has been the target of most of our attention um, since that time, since the mid-2000s. Uh, but honestly, I am glad to hear that we're starting to pull our personnel out of Somalia. What I am not happy about is the fact that we are leaving them in a terrible condition that (laughs) 
we owe them a tremendous debt, right? We invested heavily in the destruction of Somali society. And uh, there's going to be a lot of people out there who say, look, Somalia was a mess before. Great, sure. But we also participated in making it a mess, in making it a historic mess, a failed state, which is pretty much our specialty, if you look at it. Look at all the places that we've, quote, helped over the years. Iraq is a failed state in a lot of ways. Afghanistan is a failed state in about every way you can name. Somalia is a failed state. A lot of failed states that we've helped over the years. I'm stopping there, but the list goes on. So I guess what I'm saying is, look, this is, from a certain perspective, this is an effort Uh, These troop withdrawals are an effort to sort of preempt Biden's um, prerogatives on what to do um, with respect to these foreign policy questions. And I can understand the frustration with that, but at the same time, (laughs) it's a little hard for people on the left to look at that and say, that's a bad thing, pulling troops out. Yeah, but again, with Trump, it's always a question of, He does the simple thing, right? The simple thing is to pull the troops out. The not-so-simple thing is to make right the damage that we've done over the decades. And that's the part where he falls flat. So, like, he will will go and make friends with Kim Jong-un, but will he support the peace process in in the Korean Peninsula? Um, He did a lot of... He did some positive things on that. Um stopping the joint exercises which were considered threatening by the uh, by the north koreans and not not unreasonably so um but did he actually implement a new policy towards the korean peninsula that would result in um encouraging the movements toward peace that were were being um embarked upon by kim jong un's government and moon jae in's government in the south no he didn't No, it's basically the same policy it's always been. So the thing with Trump is even where he has a positive impulse, the follow-through is terrible because he's just a terrible manager. He's a terrible administrator. He doesn't know how to run a government any more than he knows how to run a frickin' business. He ran his frickin' business into the ground, and now he's running a frickin' government into the ground. So even when he by accident does the right thing, he's still fucking it up because he's not doing it right, because he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. I mean, sure, I'm like a lot of people. I wish he'd just fucking go back down to, you know, Mar-a-Lago and sit there for the next two months and not do anything as president. That would be great. But that's not what he's going to do. This is a very dangerous time in a lot of ways. So all I can say is be careful out there. Keep your eye on this. Let's see what happens. Um, I honestly don't know where this is going, but the bottom line on, on some of these foreign policy issues is, is simply ending the occupation is not enough. We need to make reparations in some way to these societies that we've helped, um, turn into a disaster zone. I'll include Yemen in that group, though he shows absolutely no sign of stopping his support for the Saudi war. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I'd like to know what you think. (laughs) 
I've included the link to uh, my voicemail um, app in the last couple of episodes. Uh, I may do that again. So please uh, go to anchor.fm slash strange sound and leave me a one minute voicemail. Um, If it's something I can play on the show, I'll play it on the show. Uh, Be glad to respond to any of your questions, any of your comments. Be glad to play your comments on the show. Um, You can interact with me on Twitter at strange sound pod. Um, you can find out more about, uh, this podcast and then about, um, our other more ridiculous podcasts at big-green.net. Uh, just follow the blog podcast tab and find more information there. Um, that's pretty much it for this week. Uh, episode 40, hope you enjoyed it and would be glad to hear from you. Take care out there. Be careful. Be well. We'll see you next time.